This morning we're concluding our series uh, in the Psalms, looking at the idea of worship as a way of life. And I pray that these six weeks have been meaningful for you, uh, not only to dive into uh, the church's oldest kind of hymn book, the Psalms, but also to see worship as way bigger than the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. It's actually the way we live our lives, and it's all-encompassing. And uh, it's one of our main objectives in this series was to see that. And this morning, we want to talk about the idea of worship as mission. There's some things in life that just go together, right? Kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. There maybe is no better combination in all the world. Some might say peanut butter and jelly, but I have made so many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my kid that I'm actually repulsed by the sight of jelly. Yet, every time I see a Reese's peanut butter cup, somehow I'm not repulsed by it. (laughs) Chocolate and peanut butter, they just kind of go together. Well, this morning what I want us to see is that worship and mission are a lot like chocolate and peanut butter. They just kind of go together. And if we're really doing one, we, we really have to be doing the other. And what we want to see is really this, this concept and idea of mission as it comes out of worship. So let's start by defining a couple of terms so that we understand them well. Uh, worship and mission or missions, as maybe you've heard it in the church before, kind of have a certain connotation. I want you to forget what you've heard before And listen to these two definitions, not because I'm smarter than anyone else, but because when I say the words this morning, this is what I mean when I say them to you. Worship is the idea of a life fully given to the glory of God. Do we do that by singing? Yes. But is singing the only way we worship? No. A life fully given to the glory of God. So you worship God in your work, you should. You worship God in your parenting, you should. You worship God in your relationships, you should. You worship God when, when you commute to work, you should, right? All of these things, and worship is a, a, all of life fully given to the glory of God. Then mission. Mission is living a life for God. Living a life for God that is accomplishing the tasks that he's given us to do, and chiefly that's one thing. And that is that his kingdom, or his reign, or as we like to say here at Hope, the gospel would be known to the whole world. Remember, Jesus had uh, one thing to say to his disciples before they left, and it was uh, in Matthew's gospel, go and make disciples, or in the uh, Acts, which is the follow-up to the gospel of Luke, you will be my witnesses. This sort of is the commissioning, the job, the mission of followers of Jesus. So when I use those two words, that's what I'm talking about. And this morning we want to see how those two things, uh, they just kind of go together. And to do that, we're going to look at Psalm 96. I think this does it well for us. We see it really throughout the Psalms, but uh, in a very pronounced way in Psalm 96. This is what the psalmist writes. Psalm 96, verse 1, he says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. 
For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in His faithfulness. So really we see kind of three things in a progression about this relationship between worship and mission here. Uh, And the first is that worship calls us to mission. Worship calls us to mission. That is that true worship always is in the context of mission. And mission is always in the context of true worship. So here we see the first couple of verses speaking about praising God, singing to God a new song, singing to God his glory, praising his name. And it is immediately followed by, let all the nations praise God. Speak his name to all the nations. This word, this term, all the nations, ponte ethne in the Greek, speaks about all the people of the world who don't know God, Yahweh God, uh, the creator of heaven and earth. So from praising God to proclaiming to the nations, and they, they show up in this context right next to each other. And what I would suggest to you, really throughout the entire book of Psalms, and really through the holistic story of the Scripture, they're constantly showing up next to each other. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you have any history in uh, uh, Presbyterian thought, says that the chief end of man is that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is, that if we're looking for a singular purpose for humanity's existence, it is to bring glory to God. And I would subscribe that that is actually true and and complete statement. That our singular purpose is to be worshipers. We spoke about this in the very first teaching in this series, that we at our core, our identity is as a worshiper. That we're, we're made to bring praise and glory to God, to reflect uh, His glory to the world. But we, at our core, are worshipers. Our chief end is to glorify God. And then our chief mission, as we talked about earlier, is to let the nations know, those who don't know God, to let them know who God is so that they can become worshipers. And we know that these two things are, are completely linked because if we look at Jesus Himself, uh, in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is speaking uh, in John 17 to the fathers, he's praying to God. This is what he says. He says, I have brought you glory by accomplishing the work you've given me to do. Jesus himself links them right together, just like the psalmist does here. That this orientation, this purpose, this, this chief end of man to glorify God 
always is in full connection to taking his glory to the nations. The psalmist gives us two really reasons for this. Two reasons for the necessity of mission, as it were. The first is, he says that God is the only one who deserves to be praised. God is the only one who deserves to be praised. He says he's the one who created the heavens. And so what we know from that is the, one of the big theme stories of all of the Old Testament is this reality of creation. That God is the creator. That he created out of nothing. Theologians call it ex nihilo creation. That he spoke it into existence. That he was before it and he existed forever. And creation exists only because of him. And therefore, the psalmist says, he's the only one that deserves to be praised. If we're worshiping him for his position as creator, then it should naturally turn our attention to the nations who don't know this. But not only that he's the creator, then he speaks of his, uh, in one translation, his marvelous or wonderful deeds, right? Here it speaks about his splendor and his strength and his might. And all of those are words that speak of God as the protector or the rescuer of his people. And this is the other major storyline of the Old Testament that the psalmist is very familiar with. That God's people seem to always get themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. They end up in Egypt. They end up caught somewhere else. They end up uh, in exile. And it's because of God's grace and mercy, his might, his splendor, his marvelous deeds, that he draws them back. These are the two big prevailing storylines of the Old Testament, and I would suggest to you the New Testament, where Jesus is the new creation of God, and he comes to rescue us. And because of this, God is the only one who deserves praise. And if we are worshiping God in this way, it's naturally connected to mission for God on the basis of this. And then he makes a very telling statement, the psalmist does, and, and in Hebrew, it is, it is uh, even more powerful. Now, I'm not fantastic at Hebrew, but even I can pick up on this. This is what he says. He says, the people's Elohim is really an Elohim. Right? Did you catch that? I'm going to tell you what that means in a second. But if you read it in Hebrew, you're like, whoa, those are almost the same words, aren't they? The word Elohim means God. You might know that. The word Elohim is translated idols here. What it really means is a nobody. They're treating the somebody as a nobody, or very much the opposite. They're treating these nobodies as the somebody. And in the same way, those who are fully given in their life to glorify God in every way, look to the world and see that we know the creator of the universe. And that we know the one who has rescued us. That we know he is the one who deserves to be praised. And that the world is putting all their eggs in the baskets of a bunch of nobodies. We said this before in the first teaching in this series, and that is that we are all created in an identity to be worshipers. That even when we don't worship God, we are worshiping somebody else, oftentimes ourselves, sometimes societal structures, sometimes other gods that we put in the place. And in the same way, it is true even for non 
religious people are not people who would be spiritual in their understanding of things. That they are fully given in their identity to be worshipers, but they are worshiping nobodies. When the somebody, the God of the universe, is desperate for their attention. Uh, it makes me think of, of the Apostle Paul. You might remember the story in Acts chapter 17 when he finds himself in the city of Athens. Now, if you're familiar with the story, Paul is on these missionary journeys. Uh, and oftentimes, because he's speaking the truth of the gospel, uh, he is not well received by segments of society. And so he finds himself in Athens not because he planned to be there, not because it was on his itinerary, not because he even ever dreamed about being there, but because he was so persecuted, it says in the book of Acts, that he was pushed to the edge of the sea. They dropped him on a boat, and the boat took him to Athens, and none of his colleagues could be there with him, so he was kind of waiting in Athens for them to be there. So you get this picture of kind of a guy who's just maybe on a an unexpected vacation. That's how I would perceive it, right? Work got really hard. I found myself on a boat. I'm in Athens. I'm going to hang out for a while. But not Paul, right? Paul in his life that's fully given to God then begins walking around the city of Athens, it says in Acts chapter 17. And what does, he, what does it say he begins to notice? His, his spirit is stirred because he sees a people who are calling their Elohim, their nobodies, the Elohim the God of the universe. And it eventually leads him right into a whole mission where he's put on this huge platform at the Areopagus that he never expected, never intended, that fully came out just of a spirit of worship. And in that, he says very famously, I was walking around your city and I found a statue to an unnamed God. And I'm here to tell you I know his name. The Elohim is not the Elohim. And for us as worshipers of God, of Elohim, to not have a mindset for mission is to miss the truth of worship. John Piper, a famous pastor, theologian, deep, deep thinker, he wrote a really good book called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's about missions. Uh, if, if you're not like a, a deep thinker about these things, it's great reading to put you straight to sleep. Uh, it's also a fantastic book uh, doorstop. It's a giant book and with small letters and all these things. But uh, if you've got a year and a half, you can chew your way right through it. Or let me give you this one little tidbit from it, and you can say you read it. Uh, John Piper, and I think this is dead on. I think this is so good. He says, most people think that their purpose is mission. Most people think that the purpose of the church, the purpose of followers of Jesus is mission. But it is not. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the follower of Jesus, the purpose of us is worship. Then he follows it up with two very telling statements. The first is, mission only exists because worship doesn't. You see that? Mission exists because there are people who are not worshiping God. Statement number one. Statement number two There is coming a time, and the psalmist says it right here too, when mission will cease. When Jesus returns and the world is set to rights, mission will cease. But Revelation reminds us that what will never cease is worship. That forever and ever, living in the glory and the splendor of God will cause us 
to be declaring and ascribing uh, to him his worth and his glory. So in it, we see that that mission always, it's, it's there with worship, and it comes out of worship. And worship as our central purpose moves us into mission. And this is a perfect segue to point number two, and that is that worship leads us to mission. Or maybe even better, worship spurs on mission in our lives. That is that true worship, a life fully given to God for His glory, precipitates mission. To use the psalmist's words of praise and proclamation, praise precedes proclamation. That that from our worship, that we are spurred on to more and more mission. That true worship always leads to mission. And I would suggest to you, when it doesn't, oftentimes it is a telling statement that our worship is actually very self-centered. It's more about us than it is about God. It's more about the personal experience we can have in worship than moving into a life fully given to God. Or it's more about our personal gain, what we think we can wrestle from God because of the time we've invested in praising or worshiping God. But the true worship, rather than pointing towards those things, always moves us into mission. That individually and corporately, when we are given to worshiping God in song and in prayer and opening the scriptures and in living the fullness of our lives, our heart should become more and more aligned to the heart of God. And if you read the scriptures, the heart of God is for the world. That everyone would experience the fullness of life that he offers. That everyone would be in right relationship with him. That everyone would have the overflowing joy and bounty of life that only comes from a relationship with him. And so then, mission that is not soaked in worship, that does not precipitate from worship, in so many ways misses the point. We can be very active for God And yet, if it's not rooted in these realities, not really be doing the things that God has called us to. In fact, oftentimes our mission, our activity for God becomes isolated and easily extinguished when it's not rooted in worship. That we get off point and that we're easy to give up. But when our hearts are fully given to worship, this passion for the world and for for the world to know who God is emerges from us. One commentator said it like this. Maybe this is helpful. He says, Oftentimes worship starts with a song in your heart, but it must always become a chorus that includes others in the music. And then if we really think this through, it leads us kind of to the third and final point. And that is that worship is, in and of itself, mission. 
that when we live a life fully given to God for his glory, we in fact are then engaging in mission. That true worship itself is mission. Or to use our praise and proclamation, that praise embodied in our life is the best kind of proclamation. And the psalmist here uses this language of offerings, right? He says, you bring your offering into the temple, and then it eventually leads to this reality that you speak to the nations that, quote, the Lord reigns. Because when you submit yourself to God in worship, and when you offer offerings to this God, this higher power, what you're saying is that he rules and you don't. That the Lord reigns. And so the psalmist is speaking really of the whole system of worship in the Old Testament. The temple mount in Jerusalem and the sacrifices that were brought and the order of worship that defined the livelihood of the nation of Israel was always meant not sort of to be an order of operations for a nation, but a living testimony to the rest of the world that God reigns. That your Elohim is not the Elohim. That God is. And therefore we see it all through the Old Testament that Jerusalem and Israel was supposed to be this magnet to the nations. Where people would come because they saw people who were experiencing the fullness of life because of their inherent connection to the true God. Israel never did a great job of fully living this out. And so God's Vision for this in the Old Testament never came in its fullness. And so Jesus enters into the world. And in his incarnation, Jesus becomes the person that the nation of Israel never could be. And in the giving of himself as an offering for the world, he again embodies a life of worship to God. Philippians says that he set aside his own godliness in order that he might be submissive to the Father. And literally offering himself, then he shows that God is the only true creator and that God is the only true rescuer. Those two huge storylines of Scripture. And in so doing, opens up this beautiful picture of worship as mission, as it was intended to be. And then let us know as his followers, that when we live into this life of worship, our lives too speak the fullness of who God is to an onlooking world. We've said this several times throughout, but I'll say it again. Romans chapter 12, the first couple verses of Romans chapter 12 are critical to understanding this idea of worship as life. Remember in Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul is speaking to a church in Rome who he does not know well, but who he's going to, and he's going to use them as a launch pad uh, in his hopes, it never fully works out, to go on mission to Spain, where he's never been before. We find this out in the, uh, the, the closing chapters of Romans. 
And in the first, first 11 chapters, he announces the fullness of the gospel. The creator God, the rescuer God, this beautiful story of who God is. And then in Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore, the only thing we can do in response to who God is, is to offer our lives. And there's that word offering again. That in worship, we offer ourselves to God. And in the offering of our lives, we become on mission with God. And can I tell you something? The embodied life of worship is the most powerful witness to the reality of God in the history of the earth. There's been great preachers, preachers far greater than me, and there'll be great preachers to come. And their sermons pale in comparison to the potential of your life lived in worship to God and the impact that God can have through it. Any onlooker will tell you, when you order your life around the true Elohim, it speaks volumes in proclaiming who God is. To go back to John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I love this statement too. He says the the failure of humanity, but let me just narrow it into the church. The failure of the church, my, my term, is not that we don't, haven't worked or don't work to increase God's glory. The failure of the church is that we do not delight in God so as to reflect his glory. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most delighted in him. That the best kind of mission comes from true worship. Now, morning, I want to remind you of three ways that we've called you and we are, as a church are engaged in real mission. But I want to remind us as a church, not just that we have these things to do, but that for us to really be after these things as a church, we have to be after God even more. So that from our delight in God, comes the reflection of his glory in all of these ways. So we've called each other together on mission in three ways. Personally, we've said uh, as a church, excuse me, every year we we live by this one-for-one initiative, we call it. Many of you, you're familiar with this. Some of you, you're hearing it for the first time. That is our call to each of you uh, and to myself is that what if at the end of every calendar year we have reproduced ourselves individually? That we have brought one person into this movement called Hope Alliance. That we've brought one person into into faith with Jesus. To see the church grow, to see the gospel move forward, to see the kingdom expand, it, it necessitates our willingness to participate in it. And this is the handle we've given each other to say, Who is in your spheres of influence? Who do you know? Where has God sovereignly and providentially placed you? Who are those people? And are you praying for intentionality, to live intentionally in those spheres of influence? Are you praying that God would give you influence in those places? 
And are you praying that God will give you impact in those places? So that at the end of the calendar year, here at Hope Alliance and in the family of God in in greater proportion, in, in relationship with God, there would be another person who's experiencing the freedom of the gospel, who's not pursuing Elohim, but now Elohim, who is worshiping God. This is how we're moving forward as a church. This is how we're calling people into it. This is what we're after. This is what it means for us to be on mission, to live intentionally where you're at, where the gospel can't go on Sunday mornings, but it does go with you where you go. I want you to be intentional in those places. I pray for you regularly that God would use you in those places. But my prayers always start with that God would have all of you so that you can reflect him in those places. This does not mean you become passive and say, well, God's going to do what he wants to do, yada, yada, yada. No. It means that you are so connected to God that you can't help but be on mission in all of those places. See it? Personally on mission. Regionally, we are on mission because our dream is not a single church. Because God's dream is not a single church. God's dream is the kingdom advance. And so if we think that a single church is all that God's called us to, then we've missed the true story of all of Scripture. So we've said, and it's really been a dream of mine for over 15 years, long before Rachel and I ever moved here, that God would use us to start a movement of churches, a network of churches, that we wouldn't be one church that simply grows big, but that we would plant and multiply into many churches that can be innovative, that can reach into particular communities, that can create real families uh, built on the gospel and have incredible impact all across, that we can reach into hard uh, places, that we can go into places that take all kinds of financial commitments or new and creative and innovative means by doing it together, by sharing all of our resources by sharing our values and by sharing our our governance and our authority. And we're seeing this happen already as we gear up this fall for Hope Alliance to now become Hope Bethlehem and Hope Nazareth that together make Hope Alliance. And our dream doesn't end in Nazareth. But for the meantime, there's all kinds of work that has to be done. There's work here on Sunday mornings. That's mission. There's work in Nazareth to get it up and running. That's mission. There's work here to keep filling the gaps as we send new people out to live. That's all mission. But can I tell you something? As I pray this prayer, my prayer is always that God would have all of us as individuals and as a church so that we can reflect his glory to Nazareth and to Bethlehem and eventually to Emmaus and to Allentown, and to all places all across the Lehigh Valley. We have big dreams for mission, but it's got to be rooted in worship. And then lastly, globally, personally, regionally, and globally, we are so blessed to be part of this great family of churches called the Christian and Missionary Alliance that purposely chose its name not to pick two religious words, but to say that true mission comes out of a deeper life in Jesus. Right? That worship and mission 
are always meant to go together, and that we cannot exclude either. And this movement started not as a new denomination, but as a bunch of people from all kinds of denominations who came together that said, these two things have to go together. And over time began supporting missionary work all across the world. And now, church, we are part of this family where there are far more people who are part of Alliance Churches outside the United States than in the United States. It's a real and beautiful picture of God's work. And we're part of a family of churches that is continually sending new workers into the most difficult places, the people where their gospel access is limited and difficult. We, we pray regularly for the Dresslers who serve so faithfully and, and, and Mel Longley who's serving so faithfully in Palestine, a difficult and a hard place. And as they move to Germany, it will be, be overseeing an even greater ministry uh, regionally. And, and work like this is happening all over the world. And here's something I need to remind you, church, that when you give financially to this church, 10% of everything you give goes right into global missions. It's the first thing we do. It goes right away. So we get to support the work of the Alliance around the world by supporting what's called the Great Commission Fund. One of the great and forward-thinking realities of the Christian and Missionary Alliance that's made it so successful in international work around the world is it does not force its international workers to be fundraisers. Instead, it sends them to do the work that God called them to do. And the churches partner together to support them. Think about this. If any of you have ever had to do fundraising, even for just a little bit, imagine fundraising international missions. And know that for most international workers, it takes more than 50% of their time always. But when you give to us, we're supporting this work around the world. And we're forming partnerships in all kinds of new places because of it. And we're supporting short-term trips all across the world. We've sent people out of hope to places like Botswana and the Philippines and Central Asia. We've supported ministries like uh, Inner Varsity and Campus, or Crew, excuse me, uh, and Young Life uh, and, and uh, Child Fund and all kinds of things because we believe in global mission and we're on it together. But I got to tell you something. If we're just doing that because we need to tick that box, then it's going to become isolated. It's going to become, oh, it's a thing that we do. And it's going to become easily extinguished. But if, as individuals, as in a church, we are fully given to lives that glorify God, our efforts in all of these ways are only going to increase. Friends, the the truth is not that there's not much mission to be done. There's an incredible amount of mission to be done, and we're engaged in it personally, regionally, and globally. But in order for us to be after it in the right way, the first thing is that our hearts have to be after God. That mission is not the purpose of the church. Worship is. And that mission exists because worship doesn't. There is a world pursuing Elohims when we know the Elohim. This morning, as we finish up and as we conclude this whole series, 
I want to remind you that your life has incredible possibilities to impact this world for God. But it begins and ends with your heart and passion for God himself. Will he have you? Will you give your life as an offering to him? Will you listen to his call? Remember in the book of Isaiah, there's his praise, there's the great picture of who God is, who God is, and then God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here I am. That mission comes out of worship always. So as we dream about even the next seasons of a church in five and ten years from now and the global impact we can have, it really comes back to everything we've ever talked about here at Hope. That it's about the gospel. That when we couldn't be the kind of people who offer our lives to God, Jesus did it for us. And in so doing, offers us the fullness of life. And as we embrace this fullness of life, and as we experience it, and as we embody praises in our lives, we live as the kind of people who reflect God's image to the world. Can I pray with you?